In this episode, we dive into the topic of political power and technological truth. We cover the real driving force of history, political power that triumphs over technological truth. The Secret to Society's Morality by Exploring Its Fascinating History, a past that people in power truly care about, how they distill documents into useful parables and find examples that support their narrative while ignoring those that don't, two models of history writing, the political determinist model versus the political mascot model, how not to be fooled by those who claim to write the first draft of history because they're usually just the winners, why you should beware of political mascots, a tactic used by winners pretending to act on behalf of losers, what events are really shaping our world, and the hidden stories behind off-narrative events, how history is distorted and we can uncover regime media to discover how they manipulate events from 1619 to today's headlines, why you don't want to settle for the history the establishment wants you to hear, how comparing political history is what allows us to make fair judgments of those in power. And we dove into all the juicy examples and summarized them for you so you can learn the history quickly and see how it applies. Since we're just starting out and could really use your support, if you like this episode, please tantalize that like button into a sweet, sweet slumber. Share this episode, comment, sign up for our newsletter, and retweet our episodes to at Balajis, that's B-A-L-A-J-I-S, so we can get his attention and get him on the podcast. I promise we'll make it all worth it for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast, potentially Network State Insights, still TBD. Today, we have a very exciting episode uh, on political power and technological truth. We have moved on from chapter 2.2, and we are now in chapter 2.3. Um, so, so much to dive into in this one and so many external links. Uh, we're going to do our best to summarize all of this for you. Um, so... In the top-down view, history is written by the winners. It is about political power triumphing over technological truth. Why does power care about the past? Because the morality of society is derived from its history. When the Chinese talk about Western imperialism, they aren't just talking about some forgettable dust-up in the South China Sea, but how that relates to generations of colonialism and oppression, to the Eight Nations Alliance, and the Opium Wars, and so on. And when you see someone denounced on American Twitter as an exist, history is likewise being brought to bear. So what he means by exist is like, are you a racist or xenophobist or anything like that, right? Again, why are Fascist. they bad? Because our history of exism. Uh, as such, when you listen to a regime's history, which you are doing every time you hear its official organs praise or denounce someone, you should listen critically. Okay. Like the so the uh... first. Stomach yeah, go ahead. Organ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We love stomach organs. Um so uh of the government. This uh this part is divided into two pieces. Uh the first is political power as the driving force of history, and that's what we're gonna dive into now. So how do the authorities use history? What techniques are they using? It's not just a random collection of names and dates. They have proven techniques for sifting through the archives, for staffing a, ret a retinue of heroes and villains from the past, for distilling the documents into politically useful parables. 
Here are two of them. So this is the political determinist model. History is written by the winners. People have heard this saying, but taking it seriously has profound implications. For example, whoever claims to be writing the first draft of history is therefore one of the winners. Um, for another, history is what's useful to the regime. A classic example is the Katyn Forest. The admission that the Soviets did it would have delegitimized, uh, and actually before going into that, so the Katyn Forest was a atrocity committed by um, the Soviet Union on April 13th, 1990. Uh, they admitted to uh, carrying out the massacre of 22,000 Polish officers, prisoners of war, and intellectuals in the Katyn Forest near Smolensk, Russia, during World War II. And the Soviets had previously blamed the atrocity on the Germans, but evidence including eyewitness accounts and forensic investigations pointed to Soviet guilt. So the admission was a significant moment in Soviet-Polish relations and allowed for a greater transparency and cooperation between the two nations. Um, and so that admission uh, that the Soviets, uh, or the admission that the Soviets did it would have delegitimized their post-war control over Poland during the 1945 to 1991 period. But once the USSR collapsed, the truth could be revealed. Now, the other model is the political mascot model, where history is written by winners pretending to be acting on behalf of losers. And this is a variant of the political determinist model, also known as offense archaeology. So offense archaeology uh, discusses how some scholars are digging into the past in search of offenses committed by historical figures. And these scholars often engage in what Panero, who wrote the article, calls offense archaeology, which involves scrutinizing the past to uncover instances of racism, sexism, homophobia, or other forms of bigotry. Panero argues that this approach to history is flawed as it ignores the context in which these historical figures lived and fails to consider the complexity of human nature. Moreover, Panero notes that offense archaeology is often driven by political agendas, which can distort the historical record and limit our understanding of the past. Instead, Panero argues that scholars should approach history with an open mind and seek to understand the past in its own terms without imposing our contemporary values and judgments on it. Kind of see this as wokeism applied to history. Um, and it's practiced by the modern American, Chinese, and Russian establishments, all of whom portray themselves as victims. The technique is to pick a mascot that the state claims to champion, such as the Soviet Union's proletariat, and then go through history to find the worst example of the state's current rival doing something bad to them. So take these real events, put them on the front page, and ensure everyone knows of them. Conversely, ensure off-narrative events are ignored or suppressed as taboo, Again, taking the USSR as a case study, this involved finding endless real examples of Western capitalists screwing the working class and suppressing the worst also real instances of Soviet co communists gulagging their working class, as well as cases of the working class itself behaving badly. Generalization to other contexts is left as an exercise for the reader. But here's a Russian example uh, of what an American would call responsibility to protect. So the, the Russian example links out uh, to an article, um, uh, sorry, to a tweet 
um, by Lionel Page here, um, which I actually think is really well summarized in this graphic. Um, so it's Putin uh, holding a giant club and a puppet of a Russian in Ukraine screaming for help, and then Putin saying, I'll rescue you. And that's how he invades Ukraine as the excuse. So um, uh, Lionel Page here, who, who made this tweet thread, basically breaks down throughout all of this um, how these different organizations um, like NATO and the CIS, which is the um, uh, basically the Russian equivalent that kind of imposed the um, adherence of some of its allies into this organization um, and use that as an excuse to then um, bully them into doing whatever it wanted. So, um, you know, NATO is very often portrayed as this aggressive uh, organization, but actually there are multiple examples of countries wanting to join NATO and NATO being like, no, we don't, we don't want you to join uh, because we don't want to cause more issues um, or more conflict with you and the other countries like Russia that are trying to um, take you in as their allies. So yeah, any thoughts on, on this, Raf, before jumping into the responsibility to protect? Because that's also really interesting. Well, I guess we should dive into that and then get some thoughts. So, um, so in responsibility to protect, um, it explores the concept of humanitarian intervention, which is when one country intervenes militarily in another country to stop human rights abuses. Right? So the author argues that this concept has been controversial in the past, and some argue that it violates the principles of state sovereignty and non-intervention in the internal affairs of other countries. However, the author argues that there is a moral obligation to intervene when innocent lives are at stake, and that the failure to intervene can lead to even greater human suffering. And the author discusses several examples of successful in humanitarian interventions, such as NATO's intervention in Kosovo in 1999, and argues that these interventions were necessary to stop human rights abuses. The article concludes by stating that the moral logic of humanitarian intervention should be considered alongside the practical and political considerations involved in any military intervention. So yeah, let's just take a quick debrief here of everything that we've covered, um, right? Using political power as the driving force of history through either a political determinist model or a political mascot model. And then the concept of uh, do countries have a responsibility to protect? Hmm. Which one do you want to tackle first? I think we can go with the... Um, political determinist model first, which is where history is written by the winners. This is something that we have covered in the past. What I think is interesting mm -hmm. is the example of the cat and forest, where um, much later down the line, when the USSR actually took the blame and ownership of that, it improved relations with Poland, right? Whereas the denial of it uh, led to this 40-year period of unrest and mistrust. So I think that kind of speaks to, it's kind of funny, but like treating countries as kids, like, hey, if you talk out your problems, you're going to have a better chance of solving them rather than denying them. And it's a backing for uh, his thesis that if things were more transparent, then things would actually be better 
And it seems like even traditional government uh, would benefit from that actually, um, which I think is a, is a strong underlying argument for the establishment of network states as legitimate. Mm. If it pushes, if, if, you know, if they're truly better then they should be pushing everybody up should be a healthy sort of competition. I agree. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, also a way to set the example um, moving forward. All right. And then the political mascot model where history is written by winners pretending to be acting on behalf of losers um, and the concept of offense archaeology. Right. So, you know, basically wokeism applied to, to history um, and the examples of you know, Putin saying, well, we want to protect the Russians that are in Ukraine and they're asking for help. So that gives us uh, a reason, a good reason to invade. A casus belli, my colleague. <laughs> Can you speak up a bit, Raph? I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Just be quiet. <laughs> just whisper. <laughs> I'll make sure even my neighbors can hear me. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's a quite interesting podcast, I would say. Um, I think if your neighbors aren't listening to this right now, then they're missing out on some key discussions about how the government is manipulating the information that we hear uh, so that it portrays itself in a better light. I mean, like you would do it. Come on, Adrian, you do it. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely social media. It's like classic misdirection. So are we saying the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans are like magicians? Yeah, they're pretty good magicians. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is the magician actually killing people in the end? Maybe, but how do you think it does the chopping thing? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's also like, you know, it's interesting to think about... um, where where does the role of other countries, especially powerful countries, lie in rectifying these, I mean, potentially international conflicts, but conflicts within other countries that could lead to their own demise, right? I mean, at that point, it is kind of game theory, but there is a moral and ethical consideration that needs to be had here, right? Um, if Russia invades Ukraine, um is it the responsibility of nato to do something about that and if so why and to what extent and why did you know like why did they do it in kosovo right you know if the variables are that you know innocent lives are at stake um and that if there is no intervention then there will be even greater suffering then it's i mean pretty logical that um this would be this would apply in uh, the russia ukraine invasion so um what's there to talk about right like why why do we have these um other filters and i guess it's because the military intervention is a much messier proposition than fighting a proxy war and imposing sanctions, right? You can still theoretically get uh, a significant amount of leverage to influence the oppressor's actions or, um, yeah, kind of like discourage them strongly 
we'll say, to, to do these things or to make these crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was going to suggest we send some troops to the moon as sort of like a fake out, and then we can invade from the skies, which would be kind of cool. I think that was a plot to a um, Swedish or Finnish movie. Finnish movie, I think it was. Um, that was, that was Finnish there. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I think they made a couple of them, actually. But, um, I, I mean, I, I want to talk about the responsibility to protect at the end. Um, also, the use of gulagging as a verb. I don't know. Is that a thing? Do we? Can you just say that? <laughs> I don't know. Is that insensitive? I don't know. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, okay, cool. So, okay. so we'll come back to that then, and we'll keep moving. Um, okay, so the next part here is these techniques are used to write history that favors a state. Here are more examples. CCP like China. Examples. So today's Chinese media covers the Eight Nations Alliance, the Opium Wars, and the like exhaustively in its domestic output, as these events show the malevolence of the European colonialists who literally fought wars to keep China subjugated and addicted to heroin. Their domestic history does not mention the Uyghurs, Tiananmen, and the like domestically. Xi's CCP, <clears throat> and that's like Xi Jinping's Chinese Communist Party, did stress the domestic problem of corruption via the Tigers and Flies campaign. I thought this was really interesting. Yeah, uh, so the Tigers and Flies campaign uh, is basically um, how uh, Xi Jinping tried to fight, quote unquote, fight uh, Chinese corruption. So the article discusses the case of former Chinese politician uh, Bo Xilai, who was sentenced to life in prison in 2013 for corruption and abuse of power. The case is presented as an example of how corruption is a systemic problem in China that goes all the way up to the top. And the article also discusses the case of Shanxi coal baron Liu Han, who was sentenced to death in 2014 for corruption, organizing and leading a mafia-style organization and murder. The case is presented as an example of how corruption and organized crime are intertwined in China. And the article discusses the use of red envelopes or hongbao in China as a form of bribery. The author describes how red envelopes are used to bribe officials and employees and how they have become so normalized that they are often seen as legitimate way to do business in China. And then the article discusses the use of naked officials or tungguan in China, which refers to officials who have sent their family members and uh, assets overseas. The author argues that naked officials are a symptom of the deep-rooted corruption problem in China as they are able to use their connections and resources to benefit themselves and their families at the expense of the public. Not very communist. Overall, the article uses these and other examples to illustrate how corruption is a systemic problem in China that affects all levels of society and how the Chinese government's efforts to combat corruption have been only partially successful. Um, now, the other really interesting piece about this uh, Tigers and Flies campaign is that uh, it was incredibly politically useful uh, to Xi Jinping. And by that, I mean, 
um, it helped him consolidate his power and win the support of the Chinese people, because by cracking down on both high-ranking officials and low-level bureaucrats, she was able to signal his commitment to fighting corruption at all levels of the government. This made him popular with the Chinese public, who had become increasingly disillusioned with corruption and its negative effects on society. Additionally, the campaign helped Xi to remove potential rivals and consolidate his power within the Communist Party by targeting corrupt officials at all levels of the party. Uh, he was able to root out potential challengers to his leadership and cement his position at China as China's most powerful leader in decades. Right. So it's again kind of using this um, uh, mascot, political mascot model, where you know, virtue signaling to the public and saying, "Hey, you know, corruption's bad, and I'm going to fight it." But at the same time, I'm also going to use this as an excuse to take out all my potential enemies or competitors, so that no one can challenge my rule. Classic bait and switch. Yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty chill. Um, and then moving on for, or do you want to comment on that rap before moving on to the U.S. establishment? This one's this one's biggie. Yeah, it's, I I'm aware. Um, I would just say that the common thread uh, that we're seeing with these examples, and and the previous ex examples, is sort of what we hinted at uh, in the beginning, which is that you know if there was more uh, legitimate, concrete, transparent information um, going around these kinds of campaigns with ulterior motives would be less likely to occur. Uh, interests would be in the open, and uh, that's all based on um, uh, Balaji's model of cryptographically verifiable history, right? So yeah. I, I just don't want us to lose that sort of North Star in this chapter as we're getting more and more, because unfortunately he opens all of these examples. He doesn't really close them until we get to the end, and I don't want to I don't want us to get too so far off track that people are like, oh, okay, that was a great history lesson, but what's that got to do with nations with network states? Totally, great point. Okay, so the U.S. establishment uh, is another example. So today's U.S. establishment covers six, uh, four, nineteen eighty nine, so June fourth, nineteen eighty nine, and the twenty twenty two Russia Ukrainian war heavily because they are real events that make China and Russia look bad and the U.S. look good. It does not mention the 1908 Nations Alliance, uh, which uh, is also linking out to an article, which in summary um, is about how when uh, Americans ruled Beijing, uh, the earliest in the earliest early 20th century, uh, American diplomats and military personnel played a significant role in shaping the modernization of Beijing. It begins by discussing the American legation quarter, which was established in Beijing in 1900 uh, and became a hub of Western influence. It then goes on to talk about how some of the Americans who played key roles in shaping Be Beijing, such as John Calvin Ferguson, who helped modernize the, the Beijing police force, and Edwin Reischauer, who later became the U.S. ambassador to Japan. Uh, the article discusses the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, which saw foreign powers, including the U.S., invade Beijing to put down a rebellion against foreign influence. Uh, and this event cemented American dominance in the region and allowed for the establishment of the American Legation Quarter. Finally, the article talks about the role of American missionaries in China and how they helped spread Western education and ideas. So overall, it highlights the significant role that Americans played in shaping uh, a modern Beijing in the early 20th century. 
Um, and so Belichy goes on to say, you know, when the U.S. helped invade China with a coalition of the willing to defend European imperialism, or the 1932, uh, 1932 uh, Ukrainian um, Holodomor, uh, which also links out to an article that basically is summar summarized as when the New York Times company's Walter Duranty helped Soviet Russia choke out Ukraine. Uh, as these cut in the opposite direction. Uh, so the current U.S. narrative also does not stress the cultural revolution, which also links out to another article summarized as um, uh, sorry, yeah. So Chinese uh, cultural revolution lessons for America's cancel culture by Doug Bando. The author argues that the cancel culture movement in the United States shares many similarities with the Chinese cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. During that time, Chinese leaders targeted and persecuted individuals who were deemed counter-revolutionary, which led to violence, chaos, and widespread suffering. Bando suggests that the current cancel culture movement in the United States similarly seeks to silence and punish those who do not conform to a specific set of beliefs or opinions. He argues that this mentality threatens freedom of expression, democracy, and the fundamental principles of American society. The author also suggests that this mentality, what's up? I just hadn't said anything for a while, so I said USA. Yeah. <laughs> the author also suggests that this mentality has infiltrated many institutions in the United States including academia, media, and government. And in conclusion, Bandau urges Americans to be wary of cancel culture and its potential consequences and to remember the lessons of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. He encourages people to embrace diverse opinions, engage in open dialogue, and resist the urge to silence those who disagree with them, right? So the common thread you can see, and you know, moving on, he says, you know, or Western journalists like Edgar Snow, uh, who helped Mao come to power, or the full ugly history of American support uh, for Russian and Chinese communism, which basically breaks down how um, we, uh, or I should say Wall Street or certain American capitalists, um, actually there's a case to be made, funded um, the Bolshevik re re revolution. Uh, and then there's another case to be made for how, um, what, could have happened in China if the Kuomintang Nationalist Party had won against the Chinese Communist Party in their civil war. Um, and so, you know, in a nutshell, the potential economic, social, and political developments that could have occurred in China, as well as how it would have affected the world, um, argues that a victory by the Kuomintang would have resulted in a more capitalist and democratic China, but also a more unstable and authoritarian one, uh, which is an interesting uh, conflict there. Uh, the author suggests that the United States may have become more involved in China, leading to a different outcome in the Korean War and potentially altering the course of the Cold War, right? So even something as um, binary as who came to power during Chinese uh, during the Chinese Civil War would have had all of these massive macroeconomic and political implications today. Um, 
And he goes on to say that this isn't simply a matter of the age of events. After all, regime media goes back further in time when convenient distorting events from 1619 for today's headlines. Uh, and those also link out to ways in which um, the U.S. has distorted its past, uh, especially as it relates to slavery. Um, so it's called the 1619 Project, which aims to reframe American history by placing slavery and Black Americans' experiences at the center of the story. The article argues that the project contains several factual errors and oversimplifications, and that it is based on an ideological commitment to the idea that the U.S. was founded primarily as a slaveholding nation. Our author argues that while the project brings attention to important issues, its historical inaccuracies risk undermining its credibility and fueling a reactionary backlash. And the article also critiques the project's framing of history as a political weapon rather than as a means of deepening understanding and fostering reconciliation. So this is an extremely hot, hot topic, um, hot button topic. I'm sure there's going to be lots of uh, very passionate opinions on both sides there. Um, but I think it's kind of um, unfair to discount everything that happened during American slavery. And even if there hasn't been steps in uh, reparations, um, you know, the fact that just like in the um, Russia-Polish uh, example with the um, cat and forest, if we don't acknowledge that past and explain and take ownership for how the U.S. mistreated this group of people and how that's led to all of these systemic issues that are causing these inequalities and this polarization, uh, we're not going to be able to get past it. So, you know, I, I see both sides here. I, I think it's definitely an oversimplification and a um, kind of dismissive approach to say, okay, well, there's this project and it's poorly organized and there's some, you know, historical inaccuracies. And so, you know, we kind of throw it all out and it's going to have this backlash. Well, yeah, no shit, right? I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of problems, a lot of pain caused. So obviously, there's going to be backlash. Um, the point is that we can take the backlash, talk about it, and come up with a solution that works, um, not just dismiss it. Yeah, it's complicated because just. I mean, this is a, a personal cue of mine, but some of the sources, I mean, I guess it's not unexpected to hear because Elaji is coming from high tech sort of, and obviously crypto uh, space, which has like strong libertarian um, undercurrents within yeah. it. And when you look closer to some of these sources, I wouldn't call them necessarily neutral. Um, no, definitely not. And and his They're way of writing opinionated it, pieces, like all almost all of them. Yeah, and then some of the sources themselves are not academically, you know, like uh, substantiated or whatnot. So um, again, what I would just say to the listeners is these are different examples being brought. I think it adds a lot of color. Um, which is cool and it's cool to learn this. And, and I guess we, in that sense, we get an insight into his world. I'm curious to see if there's been any analysis on uh, like 
the reading list that he has compiled, I guess, throughout this. Um, because I, I, I was thinking about it in the earlier editions, but now it's like very clear for me that some of this stuff is like super libertarian. And um, uh, if you want to make the argument that the networks, so I guess my question is at what point can we even look at, uh, should we be looking at the, the development of network states themselves as a libertarian movement or as something else? Um, and we just have to be wary of that is when he brings in these sources uh, that it may add, you know, uh, push the concept further along a certain political spectrum. I don't have the weight to, you know, judge that really. It might be more obvious to other listeners, to other people. And I, I'd love to hear somebody's opinion on that before we hop into the next parts of the sections. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's, if it's out there. Yeah, I, sure. I, I don't know how you feel. Yeah. I think like, so, you know, I'm just trying to think of it on a macro scale as well. Like, you know, it, it is definitely, the book is definitely coming at this from a libertarian perspective. Um, and I don't want to like put it in a box. I want to say that it's by libertarian. I mean, like also just trying to present the facts on all sides. Um, and that is, I think, the point. We want all sides to log their respective data on this shared history blockchain um, so that every side gets logged and then we can work towards repairing each of these issues one by one, right? But unless we have each opinionated piece, even if it's opinionated, I mean, like that's what brings the motivation for that individual uh, journalist or historian or whatever to mm -hmm. look into those atrocities or look into those um, inequalities and make their case, right? And as long as their case is grounded in fact, and that fact is logged to the blockchain, now we can talk about that, um, <laughs> right? It's, it's something that uh, everybody can see as fact, and therefore we have a, a much more even playing field when it comes to discussing these things. I think the, the part where we get lost is if we did the same thing that Russia did to Poland in that 40-year period of denying the, the forest um, massacre, because if we can't talk about it and if we're not on the same page about what actually happened, forget about resolving those issues. Forget about it. <laughs> I was I, I was hoping you were gonna I, I was wondering where you were gonna get our our catchphrase in this episode, actually. <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Forget about it. Network state insights. Uh <laughs> so, um cool. All right. So moving on to, to your section uh, that you're going to dive into here, Raf, I'll, I'll read this, this portion. And then I want to hear what you think about ally Russia. So um, Balji goes on to say, right, for the British empire, uh, the British in both world war one and world war two understandably emphasized the evils of Germany, but not so much the evils of their ally, Russia. Uh, what are they talking about here? Uh, I mean, specifically, uh, if, if you actually mentioned it before, um, <laughs> the Soviets uh, carried out uh, atrocities against the Polish, uh, atrocities against their own people, as we saw, and it's convenient for uh, the British at the time to not point to those, but actually uh, ignore them completely, probably in the national media, probably didn't even, you know, scale a, a chart on any uh, newspapers. 
so that it could carry you know it could carry out this idea that well um we have an objective we have this strong ally and therefore you know we can we can keep moving forward whereas if we took the time to and considered all of the bad things that both russia and we'll find out very soon what the british empire itself did um then uh i think the argument would be well they wouldn't have gotten things done um i think there's a what we're going to see next is, is that there's a counterpoint which is well uh this is problematic i guess if you're the one in power mm -hmm. but uh if you become a second rate uh actor or power or whatever it is um then suddenly uh you're no longer the center of attention and therefore uh your previous mistakes uh get conveniently overlooked or are or they're pointed at but because you're no longer in a position of power it's kind of like ah well you know i guess just you know what can we do can we make you do you know it's <laughs> kind of like you know i kind of extrapolated out to these power dynamics because right basically what this is saying um and just to you know conclude right um the British Empire was much more willing to hide the evils of their ally, Russia, because they're their ally, right? Um, and continuing on, or their own evils during the Opium Wars, or the desire for the Indian subcontinent to breathe free, and so on. Uh, this one is almost too easy, as the UK is no longer a contender for heavyweight champion of the world, so no one is offended when someone points out its past self-serving inconsistencies. Indeed, documenting the UK's sins is now a cottage industry for Britain's virtue signalers, as beating up on a beaten empire is far easier than tackling the taboos of a still live one. Point being, once you get your head out <laughs> of the civilization you grew up in and look at things comparatively, the techniques of political history become obvious. One of, the one of those techniques deserves special mention, and that's a peacetime version of the atrocity story. Mm -hmm. um should i read this quote or dive into atrocity story first no go for it because that is atrocity cool. stories so one of the most time-honored techniques to mobilize public animosity against the enemy and to justify military action is the atrocity story this technique says professor laswell has been used with unwavering uh success or unvarying success in every conflict known to man the concept is as useful in peacetime as it is in war. Why? Because states get their people hyped up to fight wars by stressing the essentially defensive nature of what they are doing and the savage behavior of the enemy. But war is politics by other means, so politics is war by other means. Even in peacetime, the state is predicted on force, and this use of force requires justification. The atrocity story is the tool used to convince people the use of state force is legitimate yeah yeah so again the atrocity story is to say wow look how bad this thing was we most certainly must intervene um and usually that is to convince people to go to war hype them up because look how the germans invaded belgium and the belgians were completely defenseless therefore we we really have to go and attack them that's that's a very common that's a, the common example for World War II, I think, for the UK, and definitely for the US, they were, um, they would call them uh, the Huns, right? The Germans would mm. be called the Huns, and they had just uh, attacked the defenseless Belgians. 
which I'm going to call the Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, basically there are some legitimate reasons to go to war, um, but where that line is drawn and how that fits into this um, humanitarian need to do something about it uh, still, still a pretty significant gray area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's answering the question, why should we care? And sometimes people need to be nudged in the right direction, probably because you've been stuffing so much, uh, non-important information <laughs> that, uh, they become numb to everything or they become numb to real issues. And when a real issue pops up, then it's like, Oh, okay. Then we really have to whip it up, you know? So, so I guess yeah. that would be an example of it being uh, used well. Um, his issue and the issue we get into by the end of it is how do you know when it's true or not, basically. Right. Okay, so coming from a different vantage point, René Girard would call this Ooh. a founding murder. Once you see this <laughs> technique, you see it everywhere. So what is a, what's a founding murder? Uh, so... Founding murder, again, René Girard, a French uh, philosopher, not quite as popular as Foucault, probably because he uh, was a theological philosopher, so one who believed in um, the Bible. And that's for some people that I guess is uh, feels like a um, mis, uh, I mean, incorrectly would probably label that as some kind of oxymoron. But um, essentially, this French philosopher, Great pronunciation, by the way, Adrian. You must have a little bit of French in you. Um, uh, pointed out that, uh, I guess, his argument, and he uses often the Bible as an example. Again, Christian, uh, not not the other versions uh, or editions out there, depending on which one you have in your bed stand, nightstand. But um, the that the founding that culture or civilizations can often be traced back to a founding murder uh i guess in the christian sense or in the in the biblical sense you're probably going to see um uh, well i mean you're going to see jesus <laughs> um in the biggest one uh even before that i guess you would call it cain and abel um there is this idea that you can basically scapegoat a an individual an identity a group in a way of building a uh, as a way of building your own community right so again atrocity story similar here uh, another crisis or tragedy has occurred and this therefore is being instrumentalized for us to galvanize a group um i think actually today in critical theory or constructivism if i remember my uh IR degree better, we would call this uh, othering today, I think would be probably the the, um, the mechanism in which this works is you, our identity is defined by defining what's outside of our right. identity. Right. Uh, the founding murder is one way of pointing a finger at something and saying that was bad, therefore we are good. Got it. Yeah, it's uh, making these these divides um, and it's kind of, I mean, you know, I'm interested in seeing how um, this could also be useful or when it's necessary, right? Uh, but so he goes on you're to a say that. <laughs> what? Because you're a sociopath. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so 
So he says, you know, once you see this technique, you see it everywhere. Somewhat toned down versions of the atrocity story are the go-to technique used to justify expansions of political power. Uh, if we don't force people to take off their shoes at the airport, people will die. If we don't stop people from voluntarily taking experimental creative drugs, people will die. If we don't set up a disinformation office to stop people from making hostile comments online, people will die. Indeed, yeah. almost everything in politics is backed by an atrocity story. Just There's on a, that, yeah. you can really tell his background in investing in uh, medical biotech, yes. as well as uh, his partnership with information technology. Um, sure. And then also, it really speaks to the libertarian side at this point. I mean, this, this is almost too clear. So I don't know. Question. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> So he says there's a sometimes real, sometimes fake, sometimes exaggerated Girardian founding murder, or at least founding injury, behind much of what the government does. Sometimes the atrocity story is framed in terms of terrorists. What does he mean by that? Uh, framed actually just, you, you click on it, it's a cute little cartoon. But basically it's a cartoon that shows how political action um, and narrative is massaged by corporations as dictated by government interests. So. Interesting. Okay, so highly secure. While it loads, um, just gotta make gotta, them understand I'm not, in fact, a robot, uh, just a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you know what a palm tree is? <laughs> I don't know. What is that? <laughs> it's very long grass. I actually love when he links out to little graphics and uh, cartoons. I think it's uh, it summarizes everything so much better. There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Cool. Um, okay, so, so sometimes in terms of children, but the general concept is something so bad happened, we must use state force to prevent it from happening again. Often this completely ignores the death caused by that force itself. For example, when the FDA prevented deaths by cracking down on drug approvals after the lidomide, it caused many more deaths via Irum's law and drug lag. What are those? Mm -hmm. Again, so we're seeing his uh, biotech background uh, in this case. Um, but essentially, it's funny because he was actually touted, uh, tooted, whatever, um, during uh, Trump's presidency as potentially taking over the head of the FDA. Um, so that's important to know <laughs> when you're reading this. Um, yeah. But it doesn't. I wish there were a clear introduction of the author um, going through. Uh, I think these things need to be scrutinized, um, uh, thought leaders, if you will. But so the two cases he brings in and the two criticisms which he has had of the FDA, although apparently he's since deleted most of those tweets, um, is that uh, science is not actually being driven by science, scientific progress. The FDA is not there looking for the best technology or the best scientific advances, but is actually um, being pushed by, uh, I guess, it's uh, outside sometimes political forces, sometimes social forces, sometimes just like popular opinion, that kind of thing. Uh, so it can be overreactive and therefore skew the progress uh, and uh, that he says will then be uh, the reason it's kind of, it's funny because I think this has been kind of a, a chip on his shoulder or one of his like pet issues but he basically brings in this case as being like well look these uh, administrations are not actually being run for the purpose I think 
forgetting perhaps that for the purpose of like improving the thing that they're administering, forgetting that administration itself is a purpose, but who knows? If you know what I mean, like the government has its own interest just because it's regulating economy doesn't mean it should be economical. It's it's actually more probably governmental than it is economical. Mm. How do you take the government out of a governing administration? Maybe his argument is a network state does that. I'm not convinced. We'll see. Again, I think it depends a lot on culture and the vision that you set for it. Drug lag is kind of is self-explanatory. It's just the slow approval of new drugs. Got it. So, and sometimes the atrocity story is just completely fake. Before Iraq was falsely accused of holding WMD or weapons of mass destruction, it was falsely accused of tossing babies from incubators. What is he talking about here? I'm, I'm, I decide. I looked into it, and I didn't want to. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not touching that. <laughs> okay. It's it's from a, I don't know. It's from a journal that I couldn't figure out uh, that I couldn't hear as being a good journal maybe it is I don't know tried to read it the information I was getting was weird the only thing I'll just say is sometimes apparently collective knowledge or the or knowledge being built out of administ uh, institutions is not can be itself be biased um, and twisted especially when those sources aren't being checked um I think the we, we know the story with the weapons of mass destruction. So uh, that's probably that's probably the point just there. Okay. With that just said, it's one. possible <laughs> to overcorrect here. Uh, just because there is an incentive to fake or exaggerate atrocities does not mean that all atrocities are fake or exaggerated. Yes, you should be aware that states are always flopping. What does he mean by flopping? Uh, performing poorly on purpose. Got it's it. a it's a basketball right. term it's, right um so states are always flopping exaggerating the severity of the fouls against them or the mascots they claim to represent trying to bring in the public on their side whether they are chinese or american or russian but once you're aware of the political power model of history the next goal is to guard against both the Scylla and the shari d uh, yeah, against Greek, being uh, it, too credulous and too cynical. So what does he mean by that? What are the, it's just a Greek metaphor. Uh, it, it was it's used when people uh, back when people were sailors in Greece, and uh, it's essentially being stuck between a hard place and a rock. And for him, the hard place and the rock is uh, being too credulous or too cynical. I don't know why he wanted to use this language specifically. Again, I think it's 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 cute that you know we get to see how well read he is um <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good it's a little gratuitous uh that uh, sometimes no offense yeah so, no offense yeah, but okay, like, so yeah because, you're probably not listening but <laughs> yeah because just as the atrocity story is a tool for political power unfortunately so too is genocide denial as we can see from the new york times pulitzer winning cover-up of stalin's ukrainian famine what's mm. that about so actually, you mentioned in the beginning of the episode, it's uh, Durante's uh, piece as being, uh, I think he was an American journalist, uh, writing for the Times, and I think uh, rewarded, basically, um, for his work, and then only later exposed as being actually a mouthpiece for Russian propaganda. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is this is the idea that, uh, look, it doesn't matter who's, I think it's it's probably a point about like, well, actually there are agents 
even within these regimes that are going to support other regimes, uh, which I think is quite topical because we've seen Russian interventions in elections, for example. Um, and this was an example of 100 years ago, or uh, not exactly 100 years ago, maybe, maybe we're coming up to it actually. Um, and uh, how uh, an apologist can be deemed uh, favorably, probably because it was aligned with American interests at the time. Mm. And then later on, again, uh, turned out to be complete hogwash. So. All right, so let's conclude and then wrap this up. So to maintain this balance, to know when states are lying or not, we need a form of truth powerful enough to stand outside any state and judge it from above. A way to respond to official statistics, not with either reflexive faith or disbelief, but with dispassionate independent calculation. The bottom-up crypto history we introduced in the previous section is clearly relevant, but to fully appreciate it, we need an allied theory, the technological truth theory of history, which we'll cover in the next episode. But uh, such a tease. just to put a bow on this, um, you know, I, and I do agree. I think it's interesting that he started with the solution rather than the problem. Um, I think it would have been, it would have made more sense uh, to start with the problem and then introduce the solution, kind of like a startup pitch. Um, mm -hmm. But that said, uh, and we'll go into, I guess, that in the next episode with the technological implications. Um, but overall, the common thread we're seeing is states and governments will do whatever they need to do, uh, no matter the unethical or moral implications of that, uh, especially if they feel that they can get away with it. And even if they don't feel they can get away with it, they can consistently deny it or twist it or reframe it or um, change its perception effectively for the public that it doesn't matter. Um, and so we need a better system of truth. We need a better system of accountability. We need a better system of actually dishing out uh, consequences when these things are are broken, and it you know brings me back to the point that uh, we talked about a couple episodes ago, where you know ultimately, how much should we as a people, uh, global population, trust governments to represent our interests and our thoughts and our um, actions? as opposed to you know having them manipulate our perceptions to avoid worse consequences right so to what degree is the global population or an individual national population a baby right that basically if it knew the truth would only make its own situation worse right um, because that's that's what keeps coming up here is like if we have um, these foolproof methods and it's just constantly the truth being shared without any manipulated perception, we need to be ready to deal with that truth on the fly and adapt and you know move past it. And I just don't think that's um, that's in line with how human nature works uh, from an emotional perspective. So, you know, I think what we're more likely to see is massive emotional reactions to all of this truth coming out 
Um, and that could be a good thing if it motivates change in the right ways. Um, and it could also be a really bad thing if it causes way worse problems with way more severe consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't um, expecting the direction you took it in the end. Uh, my my closing comments would have been, uh, I think we, not to beat the dead horse at this point, but um, I think you especially care about this if you come from a libertarian point of view. Uh, essentially, the government is misusing our resources and um, we would be better off if there was more control of its own tools and processes within our hands. Yeah. Um, that's what it's arguing for. Um, that being said, uh, we are taxpayers and therefore uh, further accountability. Maybe there is an, uh, if, if it's there to say, hey, look, there might be an imbalance in terms of what we're giving it versus what it's providing. Interesting, uh, interesting uh, argument. I mean, should that be put into uh, every agenda for each election cycle? Maybe. I, I think certain countries definitely deal with that issue more often than not. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm like trying to steel man the case, right? Because we've had this system to this point in time, and it has led to these results. And although there have been massive problems in the world and there's massive atrocities, et cetera, um, there is a pretty objective case to be made that we have had progress. And so the question is, would we have more progress with this um, consistent, immediate form of truth or less um, and why? And that, that, that's the question that I'm asking myself. Now, at the same time, right, like in, in my personal opinion, um, if you're a leader and you're trying to hide what you've done, there's probably a reason why you're doing that. And it's because most of the public that you're supposed to serve wouldn't agree with that decision, right? And they'd be upset about it. So um, just that alone makes it clear, like, if you're hiding something, uh, you probably fucked up. And, um, you know, like, at, at that point, um, I, I, I want to see the examples in which holding back information from the public was to the public's greater benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think if you can link it to a higher moral cause and or uh, your strategy relies on some level of secrecy uh, or um, asymmetrical information, uh, but because the strategy is so airtight and the execution is is professional, then you know you're. It's, I guess it's some kind of thing where it's like the means justifies the ends or vice versa. Um, there might be some cases. There probably are some cases like that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, it's worth looking into. It, it again, I think it depends on what the goal is and what the purpose of the of the relationship that you're getting into. So people plus government. What what is it, you know, and, and there are some moments where, yeah, you probably do want the government to take some responsibility and it's okay if we're not in the loop because we have other things to do and 
the government has its own is a separate entity so that it can focus on its own uh, agendas in a way that if it was entirely in the hands of people uh, we'd be actually quite ineffective yeah and I, you know like i can see a middle ground where there are real cases where national security would be legitimately threatened um, and I know that that's an excuse that they'll hide behind again and again, um, but that doesn't deny the fact that there are situations in which it is legitimately threatened. And so it's the question of, you know, from where we are currently to that being the case, there's a lot of room. And so even just implementing a handful of some of these suggestions, um, would still have a significant impact and we would get to test that out uh, without even getting close to the examples in which you know this has a direct real threat that could be amplified and you know it, it is kind of difficult to predict these things i kind of think of it as the same with you know generative ai or when ai general intelligence ai gets to the point where it can think for itself and do what it wants. It's very hard to predict what will happen uh, in that case. And similarly, if we use this tech and we hold everybody accountable and we hold governments accountable and everybody's aware and there's all these emotional reactions and outbursts as a result of that, it's very difficult to see how that interplay of outrage will manifest in actions and how those actions will actually be beneficial or not um, because there's just so many variables. So. Yeah, it's kind of this seesaw back and forth. There's a lot that we can do. We don't have to go to that extreme just yet. Um, and that gives us a, a playground where we can you know, release an MVP, a minimum viable product of what a cryptographically verifiable history would look like um, in this way. And this is the same kinds of things that, for example, uh, OpenAI, who everyone probably is aware of now because of ChatGPT, has you know boards of ethics and morals, and they're constantly considering in a proactive way, what are the implications of this technology? How could this go wrong? What are the worst case scenarios? How do we protect against those worst case scenarios, right? And that's something that's absolutely necessary in this um, application as well, I would say. Yeah, I think that's a good teasing of our next two or three guests, actually, which I'm going to line up uh, very soon uh, because the AI question is never that far away. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, AI guys. applied to cryptographic uh, the recorded history is a big subject. For sure. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, comment, share, rate the podcast, sign up for our newsletter and our Discord. Uh, the links are in the description. To get exclusive perks, uh, like our member community deals on merch and early access to surprises, we promise that we'll make it worth it for you. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye.